not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Shelby John. Now, Shelby is the perfect first guest of season nine. There's something always feeling kind of fresh and new about January. And wherever you're at in your recovery experience, I feel like January is the time where we start to think about the year ahead and if we're really where we want to be and what we can do to get us closer to where we want to be. So I have lined up for you a guest who can help us do that. She's going to begin by sharing her story because Shelby is a woman in recovery with a lot of solid recovery. She's also a therapist and a coach. And so we're going to get to know her and then we're going to chat about some tools that we can all use going forward into the year ahead. So hi, Shelby. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure it is to be part of the Bubble Hour community. I have enjoyed your podcast for quite some time now. And as you know, and I know you feel the same way, I love the recovery community of women and men who are sort of figuring this all out, right? And um, just grateful to be able to be here to share in, in that hope, like you mentioned, and really offer maybe a glimmer to somebody who's maybe still out there or trying to figure it out or those women who have been on the journey for a while and are ready to kind of step it up a notch. Definitely. It still takes me back to think about what a breath of fresh air it was after holding the secret of my drinking and my shame for so long to realize that people that recover are helping each other and having these fascinating discussions and that even after years and years of recovery, that there's still this fondness for sharing and helping one another. I think a lot of people that are new to recovery are delighted and surprised to find the way that people support each other and willingly and joyfully reach out a hand and say, yeah, let's talk. Let's tell our stories. Tell me your story. Here's mine. And the shame is gone. And it's just such a breath of fresh air. I love that this podcast is part of that. And I love that that it's just still so interesting and fresh to me, even after all these years. So so let's start by getting to know you. I'm going to turn the floor over to you, Shelby. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. So it's funny because the podcast episode that I was recently listening to on the Bubble Hour, the woman that was sharing kind of told a little bit of my story, at least from the very beginning. And as she said, her parents were divorced when she was four, and then she really struggled and kind of felt lost. And my parents were divorced when I was five. And um, I don't have a ton of recollection about that time, but there was just a lot of abandonment around my biological father and that, and that part of my story. Luckily for me, my mom married uh, an amazing man who basically took us in, like under his wing, my sister and I, and then they had another child, my brother, and 
and he raised us. So he is, you know, my dad and we were really raised in a very loving, typical white middle-class family and kind of had everything that we needed and most things we wanted. And I can't really complain too much about, uh, about that. There was, of course, some things here and there and that initial sort of trauma of the divorce and the abandonment, you know, leaves a mark. And that's something I had to work on later. I didn't even really realize that that was a thing until I started doing my own work much later. I went through school. I was a girl who never really felt enough. I always say I was just never pretty enough, smart enough, thin enough for whatever group that I was in. And that was a struggle. And I felt a little bit different in that way when I was coming up until I found alcohol. I consider myself a little bit of a late bloomer because I didn't really dabble too much in my younger or high school days. And Till I got, I guess I was a senior in high school and then um, definitely that we kind of took off from there. But I kind of consider myself to be a late bloomer when it comes to drinking. And when I found alcohol, I really viewed it as like that magic elixir that helped me deal with life and allowed me not to feel those feelings that I was having of not enoughism anymore. I really believed that alcohol was the glue that was holding me together. My addiction took off from there. I was, you know, kind of off to the races when I left home to go to college and was really on my own. And I don't like to spend a ton of time on my drug log because to me, even though I know it's important for the newcomers to hear it, and I'll always share with anybody who asks, that the real golden nuggets and the value to me is in is in the recovery part of of our stories. But what what it looked like for me was just a gradual slippery slope down into like the depths of sort of depression. I had like no self-esteem. I was really just a kind of depressive alcoholic. I didn't really know it at the time. I didn't. And I struggled with food. I would, you know, restrict my food and all kinds of other challenges in those college years. And Again, the drinking was just picking up and picking up, and I just didn't know anything really about alcoholism or what was happening to me. Uh, got married uh, right out of high school to my high school sweetheart, who has been my you know greatest prisoner of all time, and he stuck with me and seen you know all the things. And we got married. We bought a house. You know, I had a car and a job. And, um, a raging addiction, really. I didn't even know what was happening. Because around me, you know, one of the questions you asked, what was your relationship with alcohol or who, who, how were the attitudes about alcohol when you were growing up? And I really thought about that for a second, because to me, drinking was very normal. You know, I was raised around a lot of alcohol and a lot of heavy drinking. It was just who we were and the people that we hung around with and in the circles that we were in, uh, drinking was just a part of the story. And I don't know if anybody else is an alcoholic. I don't, I'm not allowed to, or I'm not qualified really to say whether you are or aren't, that's up to you. But there was a lot of heavy drinking and that's, that's just the way it was. So when I was starting to slowly go down into the real depths of my own addiction, it was the depressive kind that looked very, you know, suicidal and, and bleak and just no internal tools or skills at all to manage life. And nobody who knew me, including my own parents, I would imagine, would would have ever even noticed that. 
um, I was sort of doing all of the things on the outside. Like I said, I was married. I had a job. We had a home. I went and got my master's degree in social work. I sort of was doing all the right things, checking off all those boxes, right? I had a suicide attempt the year before I got sober. It was my second one. When I think back, I was a good alcoholic, you know, I was very manipulative, downplaying the situation and sort of saying, you know, I don't need to be, I don't need to go to any kind of institution or anything. I was medicated. I, I sort of accepted that. And, and then they just kind of sent me back into the world to drink alcoholically for another year. So it was in, it was in 2002 when I uh, finally did get sober. My, my, I feel that my drinking career was almost anticlimactic. I always considered to be a high bottom drunk. I didn't have any of the nevers like DUIs. I didn't really get in trouble. I didn't lose really any of the physical things or even a lot of relationships. I really lost myself. I lost a ton of time. I lost, you know, my own self-respect if I even ever had it. But at the end, you know, I was, uh, I was dealing with a pretty bad legal situation, which uh, of course I downplayed and, and minimized at the time I was, you know, definitely did not take it as seriously uh, because it was a a direct result of my drinking. And it was a potentially career ending legal situation that uh, was pretty awful. And I had to go to court but what made me want to share the story was with was was what you said about people helping other people in recovery. And so here I am. Uh, I I have this horrible legal situation. Drinking is is definitely the reason for it. You know, I end up in in rehab, and I was not one of these women who sort of walked in willingly, like, oh, you know, I have a drinking problem. I'm here to get better. I had none of that. I did not think I was an alcoholic. I didn't know what an alcoholic was, even though I was educated. And I just knew I was something was wrong with me. I'd had some therapy by then. I just did not think that alcohol had anything to do with it. And so I end up in this rehab only doing it because now my family's involved and I have kind of really no choice at this point. I I joke because I I sat there for two weeks thinking like someone was going to come pick me up. Right. I was like, I don't belong here. This is this is not for me at this, you know, there's surely they're going to come and get me. And uh, no one came. <laughs> I got sober at AA. I know that's not the only way to get sober. And that's the way I did it. And somebody in um, the rooms of recovery offered me their services, legal sir, legal counsel, right? This stranger basically <laughs> related to this situation that I was in. I couldn't believe somebody would want to help me for free. It was just daunting. I just didn't, I couldn't get my head around it because I just didn't think, I didn't think I was worth it, first of all. And second of all, I just didn't think people were that nice. (laughs) And I didn't know what I didn't know at that time. And certainly I was very new in recovery. So I didn't know that our whole real mission is to be of service to other alcoholics, right? It's our whole life's purpose as we walk through the journey of recovery is to be, you know, available for the sick and suffering. And you know, I learned that in AA. For me, that's where I learned that. I started to get better, as we all do. Most of the time when we get sober, we take that drink and drug out of our system. We get better. And I was left with myself. I was left with me. I think my, you know, kind of quote unquote crazy took on a whole new level at that time. And thank God that for me, I had AA in my life right away. But I didn't have the skills to 
deal with life on life's terms. Now, AA and working the program very strongly and other women in the program did teach me that. I'm so thankful and grateful for that. I worked it pretty strong because I was really afraid. I was really afraid not to do what I was told. So I followed directions and I did what I was told and life got better. You know, my marriage started to get better. People started to notice like, oh, you're starting to smile more and oh, you seem happier. And, you know, uh, my job survived that legal situation. Life got a lot better. Um, and six months over, I, I got pregnant with my first child, which was uh, so exciting. I, I just was so excited to be a mom. I wanted that so badly. Nine months later, I was pregnant again with my second child. And then two and a half years later, I had my third child. So in four years, I had three kids, which is something I would probably recommend for most people when you're in early sobriety, it's just how it happened for me. So for me, I feel like in a lot of ways, I had to kind of do recovery a little backwards. So thank God I had some good foundation for that first, you know, six, eight months before I was stepping into this new role as mother. But there was a lot of things that were missing, I think, because I was so involved with having children and being a mom, which I loved so much. And I was sort of finishing up my career at the job I was in and my license as a social worker. And there was just a lot going on and trying to maintain a marriage and also not, not drink and drug, right? For me, I realized pretty quickly by like year four, when I had my first sober bottom, I call it, that I did not have the tools necessary to live life with the peace and serenity that I really desired. That's when, for me, the real work of our emotional recovery started to transform me into a woman who could handle life on life's terms. Right now, this is an ongoing process, right? I don't believe that we ever fully arrive at that place. We're all under construction. But after many years of continuous sobriety, I've done a lots of my own trauma therapy and done a lot of healing through natural wellness. You know, I've learned how to move my life from fear to confidence and really live kind of a life beyond my wildest dreams, right? I used to hear people say that in AA and kind of chuckle like that's ridiculous. Nobody's doing that or you know, I would hear the slogans and laugh. But like I said, I was too afraid not to continue doing what I was told because I wanted a better life. You know, I didn't even know what that was at the time, except for what I was seeing around me. I just wanted to feel like I wasn't going to kill myself every day. And that's what I got. You know, I got a life that, is it easy? Of course not. Heck no. I have three kids. They're all teenagers now. And so throughout that time, it wasn't not easy. You know, but it's a lot easier without a drink or a drug. And for me, for me, recovery became the easier, softer way in so many, so many ways. You know, I learned how to uh, speak up for myself. You know, I learned that in AA, actually. And actually, I learned that from my second sponsor because I had to get a sponsor after about 10 years of recovery. I had to, I had to get somebody who was a lot stronger right? Because I was kind of complacent. I was a little, I was not doing all the things, right? I was deep in the throes of motherhood and parenting. And I needed a woman who could come alongside me and kind of kick me in the butt a little bit, I needed a little bit more. And um, I found that in AA. Again, for me, that's what, that's how it worked for me. And I, and now we have all these other resources that I'm discovering myself and starting to learn and research and really embrace. But at the time, at least in my world, that's how it worked. And she, she came alongside me and helped me to make the changes I needed to make to just find my voice, I guess, really. 
really to learn how to speak up to my husband, right? He's a wonderful man. He's incredible. He's been with me again, this whole journey. And, 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 you know, but I needed to learn how to, to say what I mean. I needed to learn how to say what I wanted, you know, what my needs were. I mean, and it could have been a very, very simple thing. I used to have conversations with him in my head, you know, before I got sober and even in early sobriety, I mean, I would have them with myself, but they didn't come out of my mouth. And so I really needed to learn how to do that. And um, that became a really important process for me in moving my marriage from a place of kind of just okay to really a much more diverse and deep relationship, more much more intimate and vulnerable relationship with him um, versus the one we had, you know, many years ago. So again, I learned that through recovery. I learned that through the, the natural wellness tools that I have researched and studied over the last couple of years. 15 years now. And um, that's what's really driven me forward in my own life and allowed me to be a woman that, that I, I love myself today. I really do. I could, I could have never imagined that I would say that even a few years ago, I'm not even sure I could have imagined that I'd be sitting here saying, I know how to be in a room by myself and fully love that experience. And I'm okay. You know, I really am. And to me, that's the definition of joy in having that, I call it okayness on the inside. It's just having that joy to know that no matter what is going on around me, I've had a lot of hard stuff, just like all of us, right? This year has been hard. Before this year, there's been a lot of hard stuff. And I, I'm okay on the inside. Do I get sad about it? Of course I do. And I cry and I, and I allow myself to feel the feelings and I acknowledge them, but I'm not going to fall apart. I'm not going to shrivel up and die. I know that no matter what, I don't have to take a drink or a drug today or any other of the isms that can rear their ugly heads for me. I can, I can be at peace with myself and with my higher power of I call God and, and I'm okay. You know, and I remember many times, many years, probably most of my life until a few years ago where that was not the case. And just so grateful to be a recovering woman. And like you said in the beginning, so grateful that I can be here for other women because it truly is one of my biggest passions in life and holding space for their, their journey, for their walk and being able to give them whatever I can, whatever I have, whatever, you know, offer myself to them as, um, as that person to come up alongside them and hold their hand, you know, when they need it, whether they've been, you know, one day sober or, or 25 years sober, like I said, you know, life's going to keep hitting us in the face with a bunch of stuff, you know, and we have to be able to use the tools that are given to us from all of the disciplines in order to live well beyond recovery. And that's kind of my whole mission now, because I just really want to continue to live well myself beyond recovery. Um, and I want to help other women live well beyond recovery and also help them to know that no matter where they are, whether they're sober or maybe trying to figure it out or, you know, maybe sober for a long time, but not working any kind of program or tools and they need help, no matter where they are, there is a place for them and there's, there are people for them. You know, whether it's me or you or someone else that they can connect with and and grow themselves to a place where they can learn to feel comfortable in their own skin and, and in their own mind, right? And and just live well. And I guess that's that's kind of 
Shelby, thank you for sharing. It's funny, I can hear in your voice the okayedness that you mentioned. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but there's a I get a sense of groundedness when you speak and comfort. Just I, I feel that you're you sound like a person who it doesn't feel like you have to be perfect in order to be confident, but finds mm-hmm. joy in the journey. Is that how you would describe yourself? Oh, that is, I think that's a perfect way of describing it. Um, and no one is perfect. You know, we're all humans. And, and one of the things that I think my older adult recovery life has really afforded me is the ability to see that humanness and in others and in myself, right? Now I have these children who are growing up and becoming adults. And so I have to accept and love their humanness, right? And no matter where we are, all of us are probably going through something. You know, we're, we're walking through some kind of, um, some kind of struggle. Maybe it's a tiny one, maybe it's a big one, you know, and our humanness can look like you know, lashing out. It can look like anger. It can look like um, sleeping too much or depression or anxiety or um, canceling. You know, it can look like canceling. And um, I see that in the people in my life and in myself. And I have to remind myself that, you know, we're all on this human journey together. And no matter where we are in the scale of struggle and any particular day, if we could just, if we could each just notice that, and kind of like keep that in our hearts, then I think I think the world would just be a lot nicer. <laughs> in general, yes. If everyone could just get on board with this. It's yes. it's funny that you use that word human or humanness because one of the questions I wrote down as you were speaking. I guess that's a reflection of a workbook that I'm doing right now called Repeat After Me by Dr. Claudia Black. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but Mm. it basically looks at our old beliefs that we brought forward from childhood and examining them and releasing them, understanding where they came from, and then replacing them with better beliefs. And that's, that is a lot of what the 12 step process is about. It's a lot of what therapy is about. But the way she phrases it is that things that we can call trauma and some some trauma is really obvious, you know, a car accident or being victimized in some way, but trauma can be anything that makes us feel unsafe and causes us to sort of panic and draw on our coping skills. And as kids, we don't really, we haven't learned any good coping skills. So we fall back on human behaviors. And I think it's why <laughs> we, we see patterns in dysfunction. It's because we're all human. And as little kids, we learn, oh, these are the coping skills that help me survive the things that make me feel unsafe in my world. And they work mm-hmm. temporarily. But then when we keep pushing that snowball and it grows bigger and bigger as we get into our adult years, all of a sudden, these coping skills that were meant to be sort of temporary have now become behaviors that don't always work or don't serve us well. And so I guess what I was going to ask you is as a therapist, you know, these, what are some of those human behaviors that send us off in the wrong direction? Like what are some of the common things you see as coping skills that we imprint as kids as being necessary or part of our family systems that by the time we get to adulthood, a lot of us are finding, Hey, this doesn't serve me very well anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, 
And I love the way you talked about trauma and I am a trauma therapist. I do EMDR therapy in my private practice. I've done it um, on myself for myself. I've had it done with for myself. Two of my kids have had it. My husband, it's an incredibly powerful form of, of treatment for those women who are looking for a different modality. I would say that the things that I experienced, I can talk to myself and what I see is, is, is a lot of, um, um, I feel like the negative beliefs that I held about myself, like I'm not good enough, smart enough, thin enough. I have to work at this level. I have to be, get straight A's. I have to be um, this much weight. I, those to, for me at the time were those, were, those were the protections. I felt like they were the protections that were helping me to live through life. And if I, and I remember specifically when I went to therapy to start working on them, I remember specifically around the food piece. I did not want to do EMDR and work on some of the issues that I had or beliefs that I had about food or, or, or um, body or any of that, because I didn't want to be fat. And I, I've chuckled about that throughout the years thinking like, how sick is that? You know, like I didn't, because I thought accepting myself and loving myself meant I would be fat. Which, which would mean what, what would it, and then how did you translate that? Because there's nothing wrong with having extra weight on our bodies that, that can even be healthy. So why, tell me what that translated to for you. Exactly. No, I totally agree with that. And I think what, at the time I translated as like, that I'm just not enough. I won't fit in. People won't love me. I won't be attractive, you know, all of those things. And then I won't get the love and accepting that I need it. And I see that in a lot of the women that I work with. And a lot of times it comes out very much in a form of anxiety. I think anxiety is probably one of the things that I see the most as far as humanness coming out in people is just this sort of obsessive nature around and I'm not saying it's people or you know this is mostly at the unconscious level we don't even know this is happening you know around um whether it's weight or body image or or other status issues or just things like you know worry and fear of the future you know kind of holding on like you said to those beliefs that you had about the past that's a huge reason why people um stay in their anxiety uh, and then again, for some people, their hum- that human uh, response to those beliefs comes out as, like I mentioned already, anger, um, lashing out, um, it come, might come out as people pleasing. Um, I see that a lot. It comes out as not people not having appropriate boundaries. So whether it's like sexual boundaries, so people, women who are always seeking love and attention from other um, individuals. I, I even see it like this particular year. I don't know what your experience was, but I spent a lot of time online in a variety of different formats just for my, my work. And I felt like people's humanness and their response to the negative beliefs and potentially trauma that they have grown up with was spilling out all over the place in my online spaces, very much in the form of anger, finger pointing, name calling. And- canceling. Um, I think for me, it was a huge revelation this year about how people's not okay in this shows up. I don't know about you. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think um, sometimes when we're under pressure, it's a bit of a magnifying glass that shows us our best and our best qualities and our weak spots. And thanks to our connectedness online these days 
we have these weird tunnels that we see each other through that are so narrow sometimes that then it just exaggerates our weaknesses. And I also think it can exaggerate some people's strengths. And so it was just the whole year felt exaggerated in every way, which is exhausting. I mean, it's nice to think, oh, I, I'm going to live in my best self like 24-7. But if, if your moments of excellence are only balanced by low, low moments of feeling at your lowest, I mean, that's like, you know, you do that to a washing machine and it'll It'll uh, bounce across the floor and spill water over the place. I mean, we need balance mm. and we kind of need to be grounded and, and centered. And this year was really tough with that. And all of the things you mentioned, I have to say, uh, and you mentioned learning to speak up for yourself, but there's there's so much that I think traces back to just fearing abandonment and thinking, mm. if I don't look perfect, people aren't going to like me. If I don't act, if I'm not this heightened version of myself, I'm going to be rejected. And so uh, we do all these things to feel safe. And it ends up making us kind of manipulative, like people pleasing is manipulation. And if all Mm -hmm. we're trying to do is stay ahead of the guessing game of what people want from us, versus being who we are and trusting that we're safe anyway, that is exhausting. So is that what's behind the anxiety that you think is sort of rampant? I think that that is, um, I think that a lot of people have, um, particularly speaking specifically about women in recovery, have inherent abandonment issues somehow. I do, I personally believe that I don't have all the answers, you know, I'm not a scientist, but in my own experience and as my work as a therapist and research around recovery, I do believe that our, our alcoholism and addiction comes from comes from trauma you know like we might be genetically predisposed again i don't i'm not going to speak to the science on it but we we where we call it comes from damage you know whether it's very like you said blatant and big the big capital t stuff like you know childhood sexual abuse or whether it's the divorce or other abandonment issues or big um you know, first responder types of trauma or the smaller, lowercase t, just a systemic, inherent, like constant traumas. Like maybe you just live in a household where there's just a lot of anger or yelling, or maybe you have the opposite. I've worked with people who live in households where or grow up where there, no one talked to anybody. No one talked about anything. You know, something would go on and it would be like this major thing. I had a client with a brother who had a pretty serious mental health issue and, and they even, I think, had to go to treatment at one point, and they just never talked about it. And so she was here, this teenage girl, thinking, what the heck's going on with my brother? And, you know, they didn't even, they couldn't even do that for her. And that's a form of trauma. And so all of those, all of those things leave a stain on our brain. They cause brain damage, which then leads us to want to get out, right? Like, that's why we drink and use, right? It's to get away or get out of or to numb out those feelings or to have something different. And so. Yeah, I think people, I think women who suffer from a lot of different abandonment issues. I think the, I think the disconnect or not the struggle for peace around your own beliefs about yourself is a huge part of this work. People's negative beliefs about themselves is a struggle, particularly during adolescence or in our younger days when we're trying to separate from our parents and become ourselves, right? So there's this internal struggle of like, who am I separate from our parents? That's, you know, Erickson's 
stages of development talk about that in the adolescent stage that the, the developmental task is to break free from our parents and become who we are. But if we don't have like super healthy models of what of what that is, and we we're just gonna kind of perpetuate the stuff that we grew up with, or we maybe want to have something else, but we have no tools for getting there, then I do believe that that can create a lot of dysfunction. Like, I don't know what my beliefs are about myself or, oh my gosh, what if I don't agree with the spiritual beliefs that I grew up with, you know, or now I'm trying to break away and understand and have a relationship with, you know, with God, but it doesn't match this strict fundamental doctrine that I was sort of had breathed out my neck, you know, or what about my relationship with money? You know, I grew, you know, maybe their, my parents were debt and they just spent everything they had. They didn't value education. They didn't, we didn't go on vacation. They didn't, they just spent money. There was always, there was always stuff going on, but they weren't really careful with their finances. And so now I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. We inherit a certain amount of, I don't know, base structure. And then we go through this process of examining what do I want to keep and what do I want to redefine for myself? But we often need help to do that because our only, if we're, if we're doing it on our own, we're trying to like rebuild a building using the parts of the building that we have <laughs> instead of bringing in someone with a little more experience and materials to say, let's, let's dismantle mm-hmm. this and let's talk about how you'd like it to look. Right. So we're, it's like, we're limited by what we have. And sometimes I feel like that feels like blame. And this is something I've really had to deal with myself is that in order to figure out some of my own, Mm -hmm. I don't know, stuff, (laughs) for lack of a better word, I've had to look back at my family of origin and figure out how I got here. And that feels like criticism. And it feels like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not grateful for my family or just by looking back and identifying maybe what didn't serve us from our childhoods or what our parents did that they intended well that didn't didn't we didn't receive well or something that it feels like we are rejecting our parents and then we feel guilty and then you know I look at my sisters and they I think well they're they don't feel this way so maybe there's something wrong with me and you know I'm reading a great book that's helped me so much. It's called Adult Children of Mm. Emotionally Immature Parents. And I'm embarrassed to say that that book has been helping me because it feels like an adject criticism Mm -hmm. of my parents. So we kind of have to be willing to say, I can be curious from this loving space and still be willing to look at you know, maybe the things that my parents did, they inherited from their parents who were traumatized by war or by poverty or by, you know, I don't know, my, my grandparents, they went through terrible things. So you could see how these things get passed down through generations. So do you find all this to say, Shelby, do you find that you have to help people just get started willingness and feeling safe to question where their ideas come from? without feeling guilty about it or seeing it as blame, pointing fingers and blaming others and giving away the responsibility, is it hard to learn to just be curious and sit with the reality of what we've inherited? And I would say that I do a lot of that work. That's primarily, I think primarily that's what I'm doing a lot of the time in the beginning, particularly with clients who are coming in looking to 
change or even online when I'm talking to people because in EMDR work, you know, you have to create a list of your disturbing events. That's the protocol for doing the treatment. So you're floating back in your life and, re and really laying out all of these disturbing events from your life, right? Which if you have some tough stuff like parenting stuff or whatever in there, you know, it can be very, very difficult. And so, yes, like, like you're saying, the create can create a lot of guilt and shame and like, what do I do with this? And so that's a lot of the work that I initially do with them on like, you can be, you can heal from your past and still love your parents, you know, and many, many parents are, are good people, but they just weren't really good parents. They just weren't, you know? And I say like, there's a lot of people and if to clients in particular who have them, I just say, you know, your parents really loved you. They're, they're, these are the reasons we know this. And um, you can heal from your past, but they weren't good parents, but they're not bad people. They just weren't really good parents to you. So that's something that I try to help them understand. Like we can kind of put them in two separate places, you know, and and you can start to forgive them. Um, and learn to let go of those old ideals, like of who you kind of wanted them to be and who you needed them to be. You can do like good inner child work and some other modalities to like work through the idea of who this ideal that sometimes we put. I mean, look, I worked at social services with in foster care for 10 years and there were kids with some horrific, horrific stories and they were still loyal to their parents, you know, and it would just baffle me. But they're loyal to their parents because that's their parents. And those are the people that brought them to the world that they did feel some love from at some point, even though there were these horrible things going. And so, yes, we have to be able to have space for I can still love my parents or think of them as, you know, not not as a bad person, but they just didn't treat me in the right way or they did not give me what I needed for whatever reason. You know, we don't have to even get into that. Like, yes, their history had probably informed the way they are parenting. Maybe there was a job loss or poverty or other issues informs how they're dealing with you in the present moment, you know? And so, yeah. And I think for people in recovery, particularly in the early recovery, when we're dealing with trying to kind of put our lives together or start on the journey of, re of rebirth, I guess, you know, I usually say, you know, 2000, July 1st, 2002 is the first day of my second life. We have to start with some real basic stuff, as you know, like the, a lot of, I remember, you know, we just needed to learn how to brush my teeth twice a day, you know, and eat three meals a day and, and like take a shower and go to work and then come home and go to bed and all of those things. And so you're meeting these people along their journey, whether it's in the early sobriety or further down, further down mm -hmm. to help them establish what their, what their personal beliefs are now. And that is you know, a lengthy process. Like, again, I don't believe that we ever fully arrive. I think it's ever evolving. You know, we're always trying to work on living well. And that looks a lot like letting go of things that aren't serving us now. And maybe it's something that's very longstanding and you have to let that go. Maybe it's something new, like, you know, in your house, all you ever ate was box mashed potatoes, but you really want to work on living a whole foods lifestyle. And so you want to make your own mashed potatoes. You know, I mean, it's a simplified example, but when we're learning how to live well, particularly in, in sobriety, we have to become willing to consider even, like willing to even consider letting go of the things that are not serving us for something else. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out what that else is. And then also, you know, 10 years from now, like I'm not the same woman I was 10 years ago. I don't need the same things as I did then. And so now 
at different ages and stages throughout your recovery, you're still looking at how is this serving me or not serving me? What do I need to let go of or what do I need to add in? And that might look still very different than when you, the way you grew up, or you might even bring back some of the things from your childhood because you liked that part. You lost it for a while and now you have a family and you want them to experience. There's so much there in what you just said, and yet I have to do my basic job as a podcast host and circle you back to EMDR because I know on the Bubble Hour, listeners of the show, we've talked about it a few times, and I'm guessing most listeners know what that is, but we might have a few new listeners who haven't heard the term before. So can I have you just explain what EMDR is? Sure. It is a neurologically based form of trauma treatment called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. So it's basically um, a a therapy to tap into the unconscious brain and those negative beliefs that are stored in the back part of our brain, uh, use the processing to reframe them and restore those memories with a positive belief about yourself in the front part of your brain or your rational part. That's a very simplified version of what it is. As you told your story, I was listening to you talking about going to college and going to grad school and simultaneously, you know, developing a problematic relationship with alcohol. And I wonder if you felt drawn to the the field of mental health from your own needs and if that's a common thing with people that are therapists. Is it, you know, a curiosity that we have about ourselves that leads people into that field? And then does that simultaneously set up a feeling of imposter syndrome? I think I was drawn to it from a young age. I was actually, when I went to undergrad, I was a biology major for some reason. I'm not sure what I was thinking with that, but then I couldn't really do well in chemistry. So I ended up changing to psychology. And Yes, I think there is a natural draw towards the helping professions. I wouldn't ex- be exclusive with just mental health because I do think even people who go into, say, nursing or even medicine in some ways do so out of this deep desire to fulfill a need they have themselves. And I can remember going to the counseling center on one of my college campuses to get, you know, like some of my first therapy, right? Like that was at a college campus with a doctorate student. And I do remember that being a very positive experience and sort of informing me going forward with changing my major and pursuing much more of a human services field. And I see that a lot in, in other people I know. I mean, I think everybody who's in the mental health field has a story to tell, you know, it could be like, again, like a variety of things. It doesn't always have to be the most horrific thing for it to be super impactful for a person. As far as imposter syndrome, I think that we're all subject to that, right? We all are, and complete honesty in the last three years or so and stepping out into this online space and really developing something that was completely new and unusual and way out of my field of expertise, honestly, and it it has created created a lot of self-doubt. I mean, some of that doubt came back in. It was was really trying to rear its ugly head, and I thank goodness for good tools, right? Thank goodness for good people in my life. Thank goodness for other influencers, people like you. Thank goodness for content that's so readily available to us now at the touch of a finger on an iPhone, right? That we can access and tap into to um, kind of fill our bucket a little bit along the way. Um, And there's been times 
throughout this last few years when I've had to step back and do some more EMDR myself on just some stuff that's come up. The layers of the onion peel back as we age. Um, and I think that's just part of the process. So, but where I can say now is some of the work that I've done, particularly over this past year and even before, has really helped to put that stuff away, you know, really helped to just fully embrace myself for who I am and what I am and be able to show up completely authentically in my actual life and also in my business life, which is new and kind of unusual in the mental health field because we were trained, at least in my training growing up, to keep everything private. You know, you don't talk about your personal life. You don't share your story. And I love that we live in a space now where other big influencers are not are not adhering to that. You know, you know, they're talking, they're sharing their stories, they're 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 letting it come out. Maybe not every detail, not all the personal things, but enough for us to relate to them and be able to use it as a jumping off place for ourselves. So I'm happy to say that age has also helped me in that way too. I think being in your 40s <laughs> really helps release a lot of that kind of have a much more carefree, like, you know what, this is who I am. And if you don't like me, it's okay. This is all about not perfection. You know, the, the old expression, the cliche, progress, not perfection. When I first got sober, I was wanting perfection. I thought, I've almost got it. I've almost got my life perfect, except I drink too much. So I'm going to quit drinking and then I'll be perfect. And the terrible and wonderful realization was that no, it's not going to work that way. You're, if, if you're drinking, it means that this construct that feels perfect to you is an illusion. And we're going to dismantle all that and rebuild it in a way that's going to be a little messier, but you're not going to need alcohol in order to live in it. That is recovery. And like you said, it's this peeling of the onion. It's getting to know ourselves better and better and not, okay, you're going to be perfect. And then you're going to live out the second half of your life in perfection. No, it's that you're going to be authentic and you're going to live the rest of your life learning more things about yourself and changing and growing. And that is the goal, not perfection, but, but growth and comfort growth. And it, it strikes me as something that is really great for us to embrace because I think there's this sort of catch-22 of what we want with our healing professionals, our therapists, our doctors, is we want them to understand us so that when I go to someone and say, okay, I need help dealing with the drinking problem, it's great if that person can say, great, I've got 20 years of recovery, I can help you. Or I've got two years of recovery, whatever, I'm farther down the path, I can help you. We want that in in people. And yet in some other way, we want to feel like they're infallible and they haven't needed any help and they have all the answers and they can give us this antidote to our imperfection. And I think that's the fantasy we have to let go of for ourselves and for everyone else is that, you know, there is no perfect solution. It's, life is messy and it's, you know, we're going to give you tools to help you get balanced. And And so I feel like the more that we can understand that about everyone. I mean, in a way, I regret asking you that question of whether the helping professions draw people with problems trying to fix themselves, because that's a kind of a dumb mm -hmm. question. So I'll call myself out on that. It, the healing professions draw humans, and we're all human. <laughs> so by definition, everyone that goes into it is going to have some stuff that they need to work on. And then totally. that they then learn to help each other and help themselves. And it's so cyclical. It's amazing. 
Uh, I, you know, I was struck recently. Uh-huh. I, I joined a couple of groups during the pandemic online to help pass my time. One was a painting group. And then the other one was mm-hmm. this, I started doing my own nails. So this DIY nail group. And I was struck by the fact that people were posting in these Facebook groups for these sort of arty, crafty mm-hmm. kind of things, really personal <laughs> stuff that was going on. Like it seemed to me, I was like, oh, ooh, is this the place where we should be posting? But it made me realize, uh, yeah, it seems odd to me because I have these other outlets, you know, I've got the online groups that I'm in for my recovery and that's where I go to talk about this stuff. People that aren't in recovery don't have a place for those kind of conversations. And so they're looking for that intimacy. So like you, I'm just so amazed and grateful that that all these resources are available to us now. And that includes your group online. So before you go, I'd like you to talk about your coaching practice and about the group that you've started. Sure. So I have uh, a growing Facebook group called Confident Sober Women. It's a private free Facebook group for anybody who is um, sober and just wants to kind of come along and join us for the ride, right? I come in and offer a value where I can. It's not a typical support group, but it is an opportunity for us to support each other. And there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, I do trainings. I'm I'm about to run a five-day, a free five-day challenge on understanding our negative thinking patterns. That's going to be January 25th to 29th. So in the group, there'll be a lot of messages about that. And, um, you know, it's really been fun getting to know all of these women. And then also, like, it's so great to see and be literally front and center watching other women support other women. Um, I just don't remember ever having a place in my life where that was really true. So it's kind of refreshing and inspiring and really, really cool. So yeah, it's called Confidence Over Women. I launched a podcast as well last I guess November called Confidence Over Women as well. It's on Apple and Spotify and Google Music. So if anybody's interested in that, come on over. We'd love to have you. How do they find the Facebook group? How do we find that? Can we just search it and then request to join or is there a process to do that? No, you can search it, Confidence Over Women, right in Facebook. I can give you the link for it too. You can put in your show notes if you want. Um, It'll just direct them right to that. and um, join and enjoy. Um, I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I like to just talk a lot about the big things that I talk about in my programs are um, trying to live well beyond recovery. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, are still struggling to get sober. And I've learned so much from, from those women over the past couple of years too, and the ups and downs of it. And we're all in different places. And kind of like you mentioned, there's different ways to come at life, you know, Like I mentioned that I got sober in AA and that worked for me, but so many women that I've met, that doesn't work for them or it didn't work for them or they didn't like this or they didn't like, and that's okay. And I, I'm growing and learning that I can embrace all kinds of different modalities and, and hold space for women who want to use a spiritual program, for example, or maybe use something else or read good recovery. I'm, I'm devouring tons of recovery books this year. It's been phenomenal. So I feel like there's so many resources available to us, but my big shtick kind of is helping women who are a little bit further down the line, maybe like six or nine months sober at least, and then many, many years beyond that, really develop the skills and tools they need to become much more confident and um, able to handle life on life's terms beyond recovery. Uh, Because the business of getting sober, as you know, is, is really hard work. And 
it's, it's tough. There's a lot going on. I mean, I kind of just told you, like when I got here, I didn't even know I had to eat three meals a day, you know, or, or brush my teeth every day or go to sleep at the same time. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on when we get sober in the beginning, but then as the fog starts to lift and we feel better, that's when, oh my gosh, like I told you in the beginning of my story, we realized like we don't have the school, the tools to manage difficult emotions. You know, I didn't have the tools I needed to have healthy relationships with clear boundaries. I didn't have the tools I needed to feed my body appropriately with proper whole food nutrition or learn how to sleep properly, or I didn't understand what my personal core values were, things like that. And so those are the, those are the, that's the business of what I do. Really, those are the big how-tos of the programs that I work, that I run um, for my women is really helping them to develop those skills that they want to develop even more Either they don't have them or they want to develop them more, you know, that struggle of not taking a drink or a drug every single day. Now I want to give a shout out to our, the men that are listening because we know you're out there and we know this podcast is important to you and we don't want to leave you out. <laughs> but I think that uh, a lot of us understand too, that sometimes it's important that men and women have separate spaces and shared spaces for their recovery work. So sometimes there's an overlap between what's underneath our trauma or what's underneath our need for growth that can overlap with gender. And um, I'm thinking that there's still a lot of transferable Mm -hmm. information for men in the conversation that we're having and in the resources that we're sharing, aside from the fact that we're talking about, you know, groups that are specific for women. And I've had to almost become unapologetic about that. And sometimes there's this backlash or you mentioned, you know, canceling each other, like, fine, you don't like men, blah, blah, blah. And it's not that. It's that there's times when when men and women, like there's parts of our work that we do need to do gender specific and not everybody, but for some. And it certainly is true mm-hmm. for me. And that has a lot to do with my family of origin and my reaction to male authority. And mm-hmm. that's a whole nother podcast and a whole nother conversation, <laughs> but it's worth mentioning in case, you know, anybody that's new to the show that's listening or I don't know if anyone's feeling kind of piqued by that, just the fact that there's a little bit of a gender aspect to what we're talking about. You know, that's a that's a legit conversation and something to look into. And also, if you're finding that even just considering it, like men and women being together or separate for recovery, if that's something that's agitating, I feel like, huh, that I'm curious about that too. Huh, let's get curious about yeah. that. Why is that? Um, you know, why is that uh-huh. an issue for you? You mentioned um, that you had an emotional bottom, a sober bottom. So that's interesting. And that's a term I'm not sure I've heard anyone else talk about. But I think what you're talking about there is that, you know, we have sobriety where we quit drinking. And that's one thing is getting the alcohol out of our lives. And then recovery is where we start dealing with our thinking and our emotions and our mental health, that's what's underneath the, the addiction. So there's like sobriety and then there's recovery. Can you talk a little bit about the separation of those two and what emotional sobriety means to you? I think that emotional sobriety is truly the stuff that comes as a result or a consequence of doing the work of the things that we've been talking about this whole time. That it's like the result, right? It's a really that feeling and, uh, and it's the, arri- not arrival, but it's the uh, gaining of the joy, that internal okayness um, that comes when, I mean, because you may know, uh, I know I do, 
there are some people who get, you know, quote unquote sober or they quit using drinking drugs and alcohol for maybe many, many years, but like, they're not real happy, you know, like they are not living at least on the outside or with seemingly living real well, you know, in our day, my time, we call them dry drunks, you know, you might as well just be drinking, you know, you're going to kind of be grumpy or real negative all the time or not be physically taking care of yourself, things like that. So there, there's a difference between sobering up, you know, quitting something and then really being on a journey of recovery that leads to um, a feeling of emotional sobriety. So for me, like I said, I kind of did things a little backwards. I got sober and things were good. And then I had all these kids and it was a, really a lot. Um, it was hard. And I mean, having kids from, you know, quote unquote, normal people is, is challenging no matter what. I love my kids to death. I am so thankful every single one of them was, was planned and I welcomed. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work. You know, my husband worked a lot and um, it was, it just, you know, it takes a lot of physical and emotional energy. And so I think during that time, I still went to meet my kids grew up in AI. I had them in the carriers, you know, I was pregnant meetings and stuff, but I didn't, I didn't have the, I didn't have the space really to do all of the things well when I was in that particular stage of life. And I think it really took a toll on me. And so I wasn't taking care of myself at the, at the, the level that I needed. And so slowly but surely, you know, I started to get a little bit more grouchy and irritable. Slowly but surely, I started to not sleep well again. I started to become very emotional. Um, I could feel myself slipping in engine difficult emotions, particularly with my spouse, right? I didn't know how to ask for what I needed from him or anyone else for that matter. And so I cried a lot, you know? <laughs> um, and I just, I was, I was lost, I think. And I remember specifically standing on the back porch, just kind of crying and realizing like, if this is what sober life is about, I don't want it. You know, I might as well just go back to drinking. At least then I'll be, at least then I won't have to feel it. And that's what I mean by sober bottom, like kind of being at that same place you were at the end of your drinking, but without the drinking. And I think it happens a lot. And I shared it a lot. And when I was coming up in AA, because no one told me that I never heard that. No one, no one said this can happen to you, even though you're sober. And so I felt at that time, like something was wrong with me. You know, what's wrong with me? I'm defective. You know, I'm not doing it right. And all of those old beliefs came back and um, I kind of had to get busy. You know, I had to step back in and get busy doing the work. And that was a huge launching off for me, you know, and then I've had you know several other times like that since then, maybe not as dramatic. Do you feel like that's the the turning point or the crossroads where for some people it feels overwhelming and they relapse or, or they, you know, but just, you know, by some good fortune, they happen to come across what they need that day and they, mm -hmm. you know, they, yes. they move forward instead of backwards. Um, do you think, like, do you, do you think that those, I don't know, I almost feel like it's a, it's like a weak spot in the rope or something where it can either, you can fix it or, or it can fall apart. You think that's that's another way to look at yes. it? Yes, I do think so. And I think, yes, of course, that's a time when people could relapse. I think it's a time when people make bad decisions too sometimes, like maybe ending a marriage that could be saved, you know, or or leaving a job or getting a job or having another baby. You know, like sometimes we make bad decisions when we're in the midst of these 
uh, turmoils. I can tell you for me in the, in the recent past, in the last five years or so, four or five years, where parenting for, for me in particular has become very challenging and presented some stuff that I just did not see coming, right? I just did not think our life was going down this path. And I have no desire to take a drink or a drug that's not been a thing for me for a very long time. But I can tell you that I can sure, you know, binge on some refined carbs, you know, or some sugar. And I'm not a person Uh that did that. You know, I'm a person that was very controlled with my food, my nutrition. I value whole foods. I I have a second master's degree in natural wellness. Like I, we live a dairy-free lifestyle and man, I lost a lot of that in the stress and overwhelm of life because I wasn't using the tools that I knew would work. And, you know, sometimes, I don't know about anybody else, but sometimes I've purposely turned my back on those tools. I don't want it. Forget that. I know this is going to help me, but I don't want it. Yeah. And so I turned to, I have done that, you know, standing in front of the cabinet, binging on pretzel nuggets, you know, going to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru to get a cream milkshake, you know, over and over and over again in periods of time where I could kind of rationalize that, you know, but that's just the ism coming back. That's just that same stuff looking for a way out, you know, um, that I think if you're in a sober bottom, you can find ways to, to incorporate those things that are way more socially acceptable when everybody in your life knows that you, you can't drink or drug. So for anyone who's standing in that spot right now, who's just kind of, like I said, January feels like we're all coming up for air after holding our breaths for a really long time. With the pandemic and the isolation and the uncertainty and the weather, I'm in, I'm in Canada, so weather plays a big role in it. Sunlight plays mm-hmm. a role in it. For anyone who feels like, okay, I'm coming up for air, I'm going to take a big gulp of oxygen and and move forward. What are a few things that you suggest we can do today to help us either reinforce our recovery? get through a low spot, or for those listening that are in the contemplation stage, move into action and embrace uh, the beginning of their sobriety or recovery? That's a lot. Um, I like, I'm a huge fan of very small, sustainable things. So very small baby steps that you can literally, like you said, do today. Things like drinking water. You know, I advocate for my clients to drink a gallon of water a day. It sounds like a lot. It's not really over a 24-hour period. Drinking um, water, you know, fill yourself up, you know, start to focus on your breath, bring your attention to the breath. You always have it with you. You're never, you can do it privately. Nobody needs to know. I teach deep belly breaths where you're inhaling deep into the belly, filling it all the way up, slowly exhaling for seven to 10 counts. When you do that, you oxygenate your brain, which definitely decreases the uh, cortisol levels in your body and brings down the physical response of anxiety that we often get when we're going through something reach out, you know, reach out to somebody, join my group. My membership is also exactly right where you are. That's exactly where it comes in, comes in for those women who are saying like, you know what? I need something more. I've done this recovery journey for a while. I need more than just don't take a drink or drug today. You know, um, I meet you right where you are. So, um, that's a tool that can you utilize, uh, right now or anytime. And just, I think that even more than any of that, and all, I would, I would recommend all of this, you know, but just acknowledging the feelings is something that we just don't do enough of. I think we just want to dismiss it. We want to put it away. We want to step on it. You know, instead of saying, you know, I'm feeling really sad today, I'm just really sad. Like you talked about being apologetic before. Like we want to explain and excuse and apologize for all that all the time. 
and us women, I believe we're the worst at this, you know? And so if we could stop doing that for a hot second and say like, man, I just feel really sad and I I'm crying. I don't know why I'm crying sad. And I just need to be with that for a little bit of time. Sometimes I recommend people set a timer. Don't let it go on for days or weeks, you know, like let it go on for two hours or for one day. And you say, okay, by the end of the day, we're going to pick up and do something else. But for right now, I'm going to allow myself to just be sad, you know, and acknowledging and allowing the feelings is a, is a really great way to let them move through you and then, and then pass on because just like the wind, you know, they change, they don't, they're not permanent. They come and go just like the wind. And I don't think we do that well at all. I think that's a great start. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for staying a little bit longer. Um, Listeners, the podcast is Confident Sober Women, the Facebook group, Confident Sober Women. Shelby's website is shelbyjohncoaching.com and contact information. Shelby, how can people reach you if they want to reach out after listening to this interview? Sure. You can go to my website. You can um, sign up for my email right there on the website. You can DM me on Facebook. I am on Instagram, but I don't hang out there as much. So um, shoot me a message in Facebook Messenger, join my group and leave me a post there uh, or send me an email. Thank you so much, Shelby. I appreciate all your time today. You're so welcome. I appreciate you asking me. And this has been so fun. I love your podcast. And um, here's to a really good 2021. Oh, thank you. I agree. Here's to a great 2021. Listeners, welcome to the new year. New listeners, welcome to this podcast. There are 300 plus episodes for you to dig into. So feel free to listen multiple times. I recommend going out for a walk, getting some fresh air and listening to this podcast or any other recovery podcast. Uh, The combination seems to work magic for a lot of people. And take a drink of water, take a deep breath, and let's do this new year thing. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness head on.
want to be free from power, we use hands.